Well, good morning, everybody. So good to see you on this Lord's Day. And thank you for worshiping through song. And now let's worship through the word, shall we? If you haven't done so already, I want to invite you to take your listening outline from your worship guide, get a pen in hand. And every week, you can also find this outline on the Ingleside app. Just touch the notes button and it will get you there as well. So get your outline in hand, a pen in hand, and open your Bibles if you would to the book of Amos, the book of Amos in the Old Testament. And as we're preparing to hear the word here in the worship center, I want to offer a warm, warm welcome to everyone who's in our contemporary service, as well as those of you who are joining us on TV and online. I'm really glad you're a part of this service this morning as well. Now, why are we looking at the book of Amos today? It's because that's where our chapter a day readings have been. I hope you're a part of that, but if you're not, pull out your phone right now and text the word chapter to 22828. You'll be able to sign up with your email address and in the morning about five o'clock, you'll get an email from me with a hyperlink to the chapter of the day, a few words of uh, application and encouragement to allow the Lord to shape our lives through his word, just a chapter a day. Now, if you're reading the book of Amos with me and you try to find that in your Bible, and I hope you will this morning. That's one of those books that I think maybe we don't come to as often, so you might actually have to go to the table of contents and look up the page number. I mean, in my Bible, it says here it comes right after Hosea and Joel in the Old Testament, and it's right before Obadiah and Jonah in the Old Testament. It's one of the minor prophets. It's only nine chapters. We began yesterday and we're going to read through all nine chapters. And from the book of Amos this morning, I want to share a message. Do you see it on your outline? The title is, Are Nations Accountable to God? Are Nations Accountable to God? Our vote and the future of our country. Now, before we dive in to the book of Amos and the message this morning, I have a couple of questions. And here's the first one. The first question I want to ask is, do you know what season we're in right now? Do you know what season we're in? Some of you would say, well, of course I do, Pastor. We're in, we're in autumn. We're in fall. The leaves are changing color. The temperatures are dropping. It's certainly not winter yet. It's not spring or summer. We're in fall. That's the season we're in. Well, of course, that's a right answer, is it? not? Another way to answer the question, though, is we're in football season. Isn't that right? That's a good way to answer that question. And, you know, for some of you, you would say today, God is on his throne. Georgia beat Florida and all is well with the world. So, I mean, I know we're in football season, right? But then there's another way of answering that question. Are you aware that we're in an election season right now? Well, of course you are. You can't turn on the radio. You can't turn on the TV. You can't look at your phone. You can't scroll through social media without being bombarded with a host of messages that are trying to influence how we vote during this election season. More on that later. But now here's my second question. My second question is, will the tone and the temperature 
will the tone and the temperature of a good and faithful parent's voice, are you with me? Will the tone and the temperature of a good and faithful parent's voice always be the same? What is the answer to that question? Well, let me see, I'm, I'm hearing a few no's uh, around the room. Others of you think it's a trap. <laughs> but I actually agree with those of you who are saying no, because after all, if your child is hurt or wounded, well, your voice is gonna have the tone and temperature of love and care and tenderness and concern and compassion to help them feel better and get back on their feet. But now if your child is intentionally disobeying you, the tone and temperature of your voice is gonna be a wholly different matter. It's gonna be direct, it's gonna be firm, it's going to be intentional, it's going to be instructive, it's going to be authoritative. And if your four-year-old is about to run into the street after an errant ball and into the path of an oncoming car, your voice is going to shout, stop, stop. And in each of those instances, your voice would be pitch perfect for the circumstance. As we come to church week by week, we open the Bible, God's word, to hear God's voice. And as we do sometimes, it's tender and compassionate and caring and encouraging. Sometimes its cadence is that of instruction and training. Sometimes it disciplines and corrects. And sometimes God, through his word, shouts. Stop, stop. And in every instance, we would do well to heed his voice and to listen and to respond. So now let's look to the book of Amos. In Amos chapter one, the Bible says, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now we don't actually know a great deal about this prophet Amos. All we know virtually is included in these nine chapters 
But there's a good lot here that I want you to see as we begin today. The first thing I want you to see is that Amos was not a professional preacher. He was not on the king's payroll as a court prophet. He was not a vocational minister. He was not a priest. Instead, the Bible says he was a shepherd. Later in the book of Amos, it would say that he tended to sycamore fig trees and shepherded his flock. It means he was a farmer. He was a man of the land. And yet God's word came to him and God said, Amos, I have a word for my people Israel and I want you to speak it. Now there's an important lesson for us there this morning. And that is back then and now, God has often been pleased to call men and women who are not professional, vocational pastors or preachers to hear his word, to speak his word, and to have influence for him in their culture. That was true back then. It's still true today. And God may intend to use you like he did Amos to speak his word. The second thing we see is something about the political context within which Amos spoke. It says, he was given these words in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, the king of Israel. Now, you remember that Israel's first king was Saul, and then after Saul was David, and after David was Solomon, and then the kingdom divided. It split. The northern ten tribes retained the name of Israel, the two southern tribes the name of Judah. Uh, Amos was actually born in Judah, a little town called Tekoa, 10 miles south of Jerusalem. But God used him to speak a message to the northern 10 tribes, to the tribes of Israel. Uh, and so we know that Amos was a man of the land. He ministered during this time of the divided monarchy. It was a time of relative stability, economic prosperity, expansion. Um, in fact, these two kings, Uzziah and Jeroboam, both ruled in their respective kingdoms for decades. And during those long rules, things were going outwardly pretty well. It also says at the end of verse one, do you see it, that Amos spoke two years before the earthquake. Now this is one of those references where his first hearers would have known immediately what he was talking about, but we really don't know exactly. There's some evidence in the archeological record of when the earthquake occurred, but we cannot be certain. But it would be like this. It would be as if someone told us, yeah, this word was spoken two years before the pandemic. We would all know, would we not? We would know exactly when that was, and so would Amos' first hearers. So we've learned a little bit about Amos in verse one. Now look at verse two. And Amos said, the Lord, what's that next word? Say it out loud if you would. I'm sorry, I didn't quite get that. Would you say it one more time? What is that word? The Lord, Roars. It means in this passage, he does not intend to whisper tenderly. He does not intend 
to instruct methodically. But he intends to thunder his message to his people Israel. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers, a fertile land withering, pastures, shepherds mourning, it's foreshadowing of what's to come. And then if you read the first chapter of Amos with me yesterday, you know that Amos begins to speak to the nations around Israel. He calls them either by the name of the prominent city like Damascus, which is in Syria, or Gaza, which is in Philistia, or Tyre, which is in Phoenicia. And then he speaks to Edom and Ammon and Moab. Now, I know those names are unfamiliar and far away, so let's orient quickly. Look at the map on the screen. Here's the ancient world. The rising power that was exercising more and more influence was Assyria, about 750 B.C. As you move across the Fertile Crescent, then you see Syria and Israel in Judah. Now, let's zoom in a bit, and I want you to see a little more. Here's Israel in the north, Judah in the south, beginning top right, Syria, then down to Ammon, Moab, Edom, over to the Mediterranean, Philistia, and then up to Tyre uh, in Phoenicia. And one after the other, one after the other, Amos thunders the message of the Lord's judgment. And I'm convinced as the people in Israel heard this message, they were sort of nodding along. In fact, they were probably saying amen. It, was, it, would, it would be sort of like this. If I were to preach this morning and I were to say, and the Lord from heaven says, I will judge Russia for their cruel aggression into Ukraine, we would all say, Amen. If I were to say, the Lord says, I will judge China for their extermination of the Uyghur people and their persecution of Christian people, everybody would say. And if I were to say, God will judge North Korea as they starve their own people and spend their money building weapons to threaten the rest of the world. We would all say, amen. But after speaking those words in verse four of chapter two, things began to change a bit. Look at it. Amos says, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions, of Judah and for four, it means for the, it's a poetic way of saying for the totality of their transgressions, I will not revoke the punishment because they've rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray and those after which their fathers walked. So the Lord says, I will send a fire upon Judah and it will devour 
the strongholds of Jerusalem. Now they weren't sure if they ought to say amen to that or not. Because the people of Judah, well, they were their relatives. Now distant relatives, estranged relatives, relatives in a different kingdom now, but relatives nonetheless and relatives who claimed to worship the same God they did. So they weren't quite sure. Should I say amen to that or not? And then the congregation fell absolutely silent. Because Amos continued in verse 6, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And then he tells them why. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. The Lord said, the reason my judgment is coming is because you have mistreated the godly, the needy, the poor, and the afflicted. And then he continues in a startlingly vivid way. The end of verse seven, he says, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. Blatant sexual immorality unrepented of. And what's next? Their idolatry. Look at verse eight. They lay themselves down beside every altar. It's a veiled reference to temple prostitution on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they're no longer even worshiping me. They drink the wine of those who have been fined. And then in the silence, Amos continued. And he laid out what was to come as God's judgment was about to come on Israel. So what do we learn today from the book of Amos? Well, at least five things, write them in. Here they are, number one. The first thing we learn is that God is sovereign over all nations. He's sovereign over Syria, Philistia, Phoenicia, Edom, Ammon, Moab, Judah, Israel. And if you wonder if we should conclude that, look what Psalm 47, 8 says. It says it explicitly. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. He's sovereign over all nations. Number two, write it in. We learned that God will hold all nations accountable. Now, we know that he will hold us personally accountable, but the Bible teaches us, Old Testament and New, that God will hold nations accountable. Number three, write it in. We learn here that God will punish nations that dishonor and disobey him. I mean, eight times the refrain appears. I will not revoke the punishment says the Lord. Number four, write it in. We also learn that God will reward nations that honor and obey him. 
Again, this principle is stated explicitly in Proverbs 14, 34, where the Bible says righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. In other words, those who do what's right and please God will be exalted, lifted up, but sin will stain and bring down and be a reproach to any nation. Now, in addition to these four truths from Amos, we need to run to the end of the Bible and see how this theme of nations is concluded. And that's point number five, write it in, that at his coming, the Bible teaches us, Jesus will subdue and Jesus will rule over all nations. This is in Revelation chapter 19. I'll read it out loud, you follow along. John says, then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven the Bible says, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe, and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So I have another question. It's the question I posed in the title of today's message. I'd love for you to respond aloud. In light of what we have learned from the Bible today, our nation's accountable to God. My second question, is our nation accountable to God? The answer is yes. So what should we do? How should we live? Well, the same Lord Jesus who will come to rule the nations gave us a clear principle in a single sentence. Some of his opponents had come to try to trap him and said, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And he said, well, give me a coin. And he said, Who, whose image is on it? And they said, well, Caesar's. And then here's the dictum, here's the saying, here's the principle. Look at it, Matthew 22, 21. Jesus said, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He's saying, you are going to be citizens of nations in this world and the governing authorities deserve something from you. And when you read the Bible, you find out what it is. Governing authorities deserve honor, respect, our prayers, taxes paid, obedience to the law. 
Jesus says, you give governing authorities what they are due and give to God the things that are God's. What does God do? He's due our worship and adoration and praise and love and ultimate allegiance. And if these two principles ever come into conflict, where a governing authority commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, we must say what the apostles said, and that is we must obey God rather than men. God is supreme. So when we apply this principle, knowing that we are accountable, what should we do in this season we're in? I believe the Bible teaches us three things. Here they are. Number one, as Christian citizens, we can help determine the future of our country. And most people who have ever lived didn't have this privilege. We can help determine the future of our country by voting biblical values. Voting, early voting in our community has already begun and will continue until Friday, November 4th. Election day itself is on Tuesday, November 8th. And one of the ways we exercise our stewardship and accountability to God is by voting and voting biblical values. Here's the second thing. As we consider for whom we will vote, we should evaluate carefully and prayerfully four or five things, all based in scripture. Number one, we should evaluate the person. We should say, does this candidate have a track record of integrity and skill, character and competence? Psalm 78 describes David as the exemplar here. It says that he shepherded Israel with integrity of heart, with skillful hands he led them. Integrity and skill, character and competence. That's what we're looking for in those for whom we vote. Now, I don't know about you, but a Occasionally, well, no more than occasionally. I evaluate the candidates in particular races and I don't think either one of them particularly has great character or competence. Do you ever find yourself in that kind of position? It just means we need to pray and some of you need to be candidates. And it also means though we will be tempted to sit it out, to not vote, or to vote for a third party. And in our context, that's almost always a poor choice. So we have to evaluate then, number two, who are their partners? With whom does this candidate associate? Who are his supporters, allies, closest confidants? The biblical principle is Proverbs 13, 20. He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. We want those that we elect not to be a companion of fools. Isn't that right? Third thing we ought to evaluate is their party. With which political party does this candidate identify and what are the platform positions of that party? 
Virtually no candidate for office will exercise much influence apart from their party. It's a critical evaluation. Number four, we should evaluate their policies. What actions has this candidate taken or promised to take on a variety of public policy issues? And oftentimes their policies last longer and have more influence than they do personally. And then number five, their picks. By that I mean, what is the judicial philosophy guiding the nominations this candidate will make or that this candidate will vote to confirm as a US Senator, for instance, to be judges and justices? So the Bible gives us a matrix to use as we evaluate how to steward our vote. And then finally today, as we consider for whom we will vote, the Bible gives us some guidance. We should be guided by four foundational biblical values that lead to human flourishing and God's blessing on a nation. Here they are. Number one is the value of human life. The value of human life. It's rooted in the very first chapter of the Bible in Genesis 1:27, when the Bible says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so church family that I love, do you know what that means? It means that every person we encounter, no matter who they are, where they grew up, what they have, male or female, rich or poor, it really doesn't matter. Every person we encounter bears the image of the creator and should be treated with dignity and respect and love. Every person. And what that means is that every pretension to ethnic or racial superiority and all ethnic or racial discrimination is not only wrong, it's a sin against the God who created us. That'd be a good place to say amen, don't you think? But you know what this principle also means? It means that every human life is precious from the moment of conception until natural death. And we should vote to protect and defend innocent human life from the moment of conception to natural death. That's a good place to say amen to, don't you think? Listen, church family, We need to steward our vote to help build a culture of life in our country to receive God's blessing. Second principle, second value is the value of marriage. The value of marriage. They tried to trap Jesus with a question like this. The Pharisees came up to him, tested him, asked him a question about marriage and divorce. They said, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And notice Jesus' answer. 
He said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? There is no gender confusion in the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, after quoting Genesis 1:27, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That's Genesis 2:24. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Any nation that will know God's blessing must embrace God's view of marriage and family formation. It's the reason we should vote, notwithstanding the wrongly decided Supreme Court decision of a few years ago, we should vote to honor marriage as the union of one man and one woman in covenant commitment. The third value is the value of liberty. It runs like a river through scripture, but a place where it's stated explicitly is in Galatians 5.1, where the scripture says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. And so in a day when some of our liberties are being eroded, we should vote to protect and defend religious liberty, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, and every other liberty that God has granted us and is protected in our constitutional order. And finally, the fourth value is the value of law and order. and equal justice under law for all. You see, that's the essential role of civil government. Look in 1 Peter 2, and with this we conclude. The Bible says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. And then here's what government is to do, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, and every government is accountable to God for this responsibility of maintaining law and order and equal justice, so we should vote to support law and order and equal justice. Church family, God has thundered through his word today. He has said, your nation will give an account to me. And it means every one of us will give an account for the stewardship of our vote. As I've prayed and thought about how we should conclude today, just had this overwhelming sense, even though it's not on the worship plan, I'm throwing our team a little bit of a curve here. I just sense that having heard God's word, we need to get on our knees 
and by our posture say, oh God, we confess that you are sovereign. We need to thank him for the blessings that we enjoy. We need to repent for our sins personally and nationally. And we need to ask God to do a work of spiritual revival and renewal in our nation. So here's what I'm gonna ask. In just a moment, I'm gonna kneel here and I wanna invite you to come to this altar before these steps and kneel. And by your kneeling and by your coming, you're simply saying, oh God, I have heard your word and I am responding to you today. If you can't come or don't wanna come here, just kneel where you are, in front of your seat, in the aisle. And let's conclude today on our knees before our sovereign God, shall we? Let's pray together now. As you knew, call out to the Lord even now. Oh God, we bow before you to acknowledge that you are sovereign and we are not. We bow before you knowing that one day we will give an account to you. And Lord, we cry out to you because we want to know your blessing personally and in our nation. Father, thank you for every good gift that you've given us personally and in our families and our churches and in our nation. Every good gift has come from your hand. And yet, Father, as we look to the future, I pray for all those who lead us today. I pray for our president and our vice president, for our Supreme Court justices, for our Congress, for our governors, our uh, other state officials, for our legislators, for our mayor, for local officials, for those who serve as police officers and judges and magistrates. Oh God, give each of them a heart to turn toward you and submit to you and to please you. And Lord, through your Holy Spirit, would you bring revival to our land, heart by heart, life by life. Would you change us and renew us and help us live full of your spirit and for your glory. Lord, please forgive us for our sins. We repent. We want to return. And we seek you 
Oh God, thank you for meeting us in your word today. And we offer this prayer in Jesus' name, amen.